a Podcast One production. We live in a world where we track everyone and everything, from our kids to our cows, even our endangered wildlife. More and more, without even knowing it, we track ourselves. All that tracking is changing what we can know, and it's changing the way we see the world around us. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this series, we talk to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. Now that we can track everyone and everything pretty much everywhere, we have to ask a lot of very important questions about what we learn from this, what it tells us about ourselves and about the world around us. Now that we can listen to animals just by watching what they do, what will we learn? Seeing the world with new eyes on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. One of the things I hear from a lot of folks is that they've started to feel as though technology has become a bit too intrusive, a bit too knowing. People feel uncomfortable when they find themselves under the gaze of a security camera or when they know their movements are being tracked and recorded. And yet, these same people are carrying a smartphone around with them, and by the virtue of how a smartphone works, that device is tracking them to within a few meters all the time. It has to, because that's the way the mobile carrier routes a call to that particular smartphone. So yes, we're being tracked all the time, even if we prefer to think otherwise. And it doesn't end there. Smartphones made tracking possible, and now that we've manufactured billions of smartphones, it's become cheap to track almost anyone or anything, and not just ourselves, but our pets, our farm animals, even animals in the wild. With us on this episode is someone who's been thinking hard about what it means for us and for them. Dr. Genevieve Bell is a distinguished professor at the ANU College of Engineering and Computer Science, having recently returned to Australia after a 20-year career at Intel Corporation, where she rose through the ranks to vice president and became the company's first senior fellow. Now, Dr. Bell's PhD is in anthropology, the study of why cultures behave as they do. That's half of where we're starting today because her recent work has encompassed what happens once we start connecting animals to the Internet. So what happens when tech meets our furry and our flying friends? What does that tell us about ourselves? Dr. Bell, welcome to the next Billion Seconds. Hi, Mark. It's nice to be here. So we've crossed this line now where the tech has gotten so good that we can actually, a farmer could go out and build a barn where cows can now milk themselves. How does that all work? With lasers, believe it or not. (laughs) Just a terrible answer. Yeah, so actually starting as late as sort of five years ago, we started to see the emergence of automation in farm machinery and farm equipment. And one of the first kind of interesting proof points of that, and I think in some ways real disruptions, was the appearance of automatic milking machines. And it's a combination of technology. So the cows get RFID tags on their ears, Mm -hmm. and the machinery in the milking uh, space becomes automatic. And so what happens is the cow approaches the gate, uh, RFID tag 
triggers the gate, the gate opens, the cow walks in, lasers, seriously lasers, um, adjust the uh, suction cups onto the udders. So the lasers scan the udders. Lasers scan the udders, exactly. Insert tech machinery here. The udders get attached, you know, suction cups attached to the udders and the machine triggers a milking sequence. And effectively, you know, imagine the cow has milked itself is the best way I can think about this. What was interesting about the introduction of that machinery is that for effectively as long as cows have been domesticated animals, as humans, we've usually milked them in a cycle twice a day, dawn and dusk. Mm. And, you know, one might imagine cows were sort of socialized into that kind of right. behavior, basically. That's what they were used to. Yeah. It didn't take that long, about a week, most of the farmers talked about it being, before the cows worked out that if they went to the machinery, the gates open and they milk themselves. And initially they were milking themselves again on that same twice a day kind of schedule, right? But what became queer quite quickly was that the cows worked out they could milk themselves whenever they wanted. They could basically milk on demand. Mm. And what started to happen was that they stopped milking themselves twice a day and started milking themselves on completely different sequences and schedules. Now, of course, any woman who's breastfed knows that if you were restricted to breastfeeding twice a day, you'd probably get a bit surly about that. Mm. And that, in fact, being able to breastfeed when your breasts are full is probably a good thing. What that meant for the farms that went to automatic milking machines, however, were a couple of interesting things. One was that more milk was being produced, so that was a, a good upside. Problem in terms of managing supply was that you no longer had a clear schedule when that milk was appearing. Right. So the third point that I think is really interesting here is that what those automatic milking machines made visible was the desires of cows. So up until then, the logic of milking cows had been twice a day because that's when farmers milked cows. Right. Now because that's what the farmer's desire was. Well, the farmer's sort of pattern of life. But now you have this technology that makes something that had been invisible, what cows might want, mm. hyper-visible by the cows now milking themselves. And I think for me as a researcher, the moment when I read those stories and I went – oh my God, like IoT is going to make visible what cows want. IoT, Internet of Things, getting everything connected. Internet of Things is going to make visible what cows want was this interesting moment of kind of opening up a space for a different kind of conversation, which is that all these connected technologies, all these ways of making things that have been static or differently visible kind of legible creates this really unexpected space where you can suddenly see things that were hiding in plain sight. In this case, cows. And and one of the other things we've learned, because I guess we've been watching cows, is that cows have friends. Yes. There's a recent study that came out that suggested that once you started to watch cows and, again, using RFID tagging, mm. among other things. So once you can start to track where cows are, what you could see was that certain cows were hanging out with other cows more often than not. And what a surprise, right? Animals have social worlds too, right? So what's fascinating is that as some of this technology that we have – talked about in the kind of smart city space and the smart home space, as we start attaching it to living things, patterns that were always there become much more visible to us as humans about the rest of our world. So it's really that in, in a sense, it's not that the animals weren't weren't aware of this. It's that we were blind to these things until we actually start to stick all of these devices <laughs> on these animals. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, the, the cows actually have not just milking schedules, but apparently rich internal lives with friends. And I, at one level, I suspect there are probably farmers, animal behavioralists and other people who have known those things. Mm. But this makes it harder to ignore. And I think in some ways more interesting because we also operate inside a world that says – Things are more true if you can 
see them with certain kinds of lenses, in this case a data lens, right? Because I'm willing to bet if you had cows, you'd know some cows liked other cows better than the right. third cows down the way. Well, you might mention it to another farmer because they might understand, but you wouldn't mention it just generally because people would think you were mad. Or at least they'd think, why are you telling me about your cows and their friends? <laughs> but of course, this isn't the only animal that we've learned about by watching. So what have we learned about cats? Ah, well, so of course, the fascinating thing is here is that the Internet of Things and RFID tagging for commercial reasons are not the first time we've been tracking animals, right? You know, animals have been tracked and subject to various kinds of surveillance, if you want to think about it that way, for a very long time. Um, you know, the endangered animals and early GPS tracking is, you know, a 30 to 40 year history. So mm. we've tracked different kinds of animals for a long time. The difference here is the granularity of data we can get and how real time it can be. So there have been a couple of experiments recently, one in the United States and one in the United Kingdom, tracking domestic cats, so indoor-outdoor cats. The Royal Veterinary Society in England did a, a study where they put RFID tags and um, GPS trackers and indeed cameras on cats and track them over the space of a week in a set of small villages in Surrey. And you can find, um, there's some amazing maps that they published that you can find uh, off the BBC website. It's the last place I saw them. And what it started to be clear was that, first of all, domestic cats had an incredible range. So the distance that they were travelling in any given day was actually much further than you would think. Second thing was that they were engaged in intense negotiations with other cats about where their territory began and ended. So there were always sort of cat wars going on uh -huh, at some pretty level. Much. So if you thought there were, you weren't wrong. But if you're a cat owner and you're an indoor-outdoor cat owner, the most sort of stunning finding, third finding out of this study, was that actually about a third of all cats call somewhere else home not just your house. And by home, what it actually turned out it meant was that a third of all cats got fed by someone else as well. So it's interesting. My friends were just staying at an Airbnb apartment in Copenhagen, and the owner left a note saying, there's a cat. He lives next door, but he's going to come over every morning to get fed. Mm -hmm. And they, they were very happy to feed him every day. And I, this story ran through my mind. Yeah, so it turns out that, you know, cats, not unreasonably, have found multiple ways of sort of feeding themselves. So delightfully for me, when that story ran in the UK, it ran under the um, banner headline, Secret Life of Cats. You're like, okay, that's great. Effectively, the same study, indoor-outdoor cats, same technology was done in the US, I want to say in Georgia or North or South Carolina, so somewhere sort of southern US. And, you know, again, same kind of findings. Cats have a lot of territorial range. About a third of all of those cats were getting fed by someone other than their principal place of residence, though that becomes a kind of a complicated category. And then the other thing was that there was strong evidence in those cases that the indoor-outdoor cats were um, killing a lot of birds and mm -hmm. small wildlife. That went under the banner headline in the US killer cats on the loose. <laughs> so it's like, you know, basically same data, same cats, same behaviours, two completely different narratives written on top of it. So this is, again, we can take the same data and then make our own story out yeah. of it. Because the UK data also revealed that the, you know, indoor-outdoor cats were predating on local right. nature, and, which and would be the experience of cats in Australia too. Right, exactly. We know that this is a huge problem with mm -hmm. native wildlife, that the cats will just eat anything. But of course, we also have the story now that when you take an endangered species and put a tracker on it, that you may think you're doing it a favor, but... But in fact, what you're doing is you make it visible. So there have been a couple of cases in the last two or three years with various animals, uh, both rhinos and uh, Bengali tilers, the two that I know best, where in one instance, the trackers on the wildlife were hacked. Mm. 
and backtrace down the line to find the animal and mm-hmm. then kill them. And in the other instance with uh, rhinos in, in um, a number of African sort of locations, there are likely to be these extraordinary signs up around the environment in which they are found asking you to turn off the geotagging function in your photos and not to post on social media because you, in turn, make those animals visible in a way that makes them vulnerable. And a lot of people don't necessarily know that when you take a photo with your smartphone, which, of course, you do when you're on safari, that it uses the GPS in your smartphone. And basically, this is for you. So you can later go, oh, this is where I took my photo. And I took tons of photos in Rwanda when I went to see the gorillas because that's what you do. And each of those photos would be tagged with exactly where those gorillas are. And what you're doing is if there is someone out there who actually wants to hunt them, you're giving them the exact coordinates for this. Yeah, so you know, even in the case where those animals aren't themselves tagged, we are basically engaging in a kind of tagging mm. of them. Well, we becomes, are tracking them, yeah, yeah. Exactly, which becomes kind of intensely complicated. So I mean, what's fascinating about all of these various kind of uh, both experiments, uh, forms of agricultural production, you know, this kind of notion of creating an internet of living things, mm. so of tagging animals... It's a complicated space, right? On the one hand, it reveals really interesting things about animal behavior, really interesting things about interactions with the environment. It helps us manage flocks better. It may help us deliver better kinds of experiences, you know, manage various kinds of interactions. But on the other hand, it also exposes some of those animals to unexpected dangers. And I think in some cases it makes visible facts about the world that as humans we would prefer not to have to know. So it reveals uncomfortable truths, whether Mm. it's about environmental degradation, violence against animals, different kind of fishing techniques. I think this sort of uneasy balance of... How much do we want to know? And what are we going to do on the basis of it? Right. Okay, before we go to break, tell me about the albatross. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, many animals being tagged for many reasons, albatross being amongst them. And, you know, albatross have had a fairly hard go of it over the last sort of couple of years to do with commercial fishing techniques and a few other things that have kind of really damaged their um, survival. And there have been some experiments in tagging albatross. There were some early versions of this in the late 90s, early 2000s of having kind of the great albatross races from Tasmania to South Africa. And you could bet on it. Um, this was, you know, okay. because it was Australia. Actually, it was England. So, you know, same, 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 same different. Um, and, you know, you could bet on them. And of course, that was good the first year when some of the albatross got there. The second year when none of the albatross survived the, the, the voyage, that was a bit of a problem. But, you know, the story that in some ways often gets told about the albatross is the ones that turn up on the boats, particularly off the coast of Australia, where there are people who worry about endangered wildlife who are drawing blood from the albatross and tagging the albatross and doing that kind of thing. The albatross are so used to this as a process that when they land on the decks of certain kind of boats, they put out one leg, basically, and wait to have their blood drawn, squawking, (laughs) knowing that there is a reciprocal relationship here. They'll have their blood taken, they'll be tagged, and someone will feed them fish. So they're fully bought into the kind of themselves as data subjects. Well, And that there's a quid pro quo. Yeah, which feels a little bit like some of our relationships with our online service providers. I will give you this information, you will give me something else. Usually it isn't fish and we don't squawk, but there is sort of something that says, you know, here are a set of animals being, in some ways, uh, socialised into a data world. Coming up on the next billion seconds, we'll ask Dr. Genevieve Bell about what happens when all of this data that we're collecting by watching everything is about us. And we're back with Dr. Genevieve Bell. We've been talking about 
our furry and feathered friends, I think it's really time to talk about ourselves. And you, you already said, look, you know, we've got these relationships now where we'll hand over some data about ourselves, we'll give over data that will allow us to be tracked, and we'll get this in return for being able to use Facebook or being able to use Google or being able to use Alexa, whatever it might be, some service. And, and we have tons of these relationships. So in a lot of ways, are we more measured than any of these animals are right now? Well, I mean, I think we live in a world where our bodies and our actions are generating a constant stream of data. Mm. And I think, you know, the complexity here is that that might always have been true, but that data is now being tracked, stored, analyzed. It was never measured before. Well, it wasn't measured in quite the same ways. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a woman, you measured your body in all kinds of ways, scales, menstrual charts, fertility. You know, we're used to being measured subjects. The fact that that is now digital, trackable, not always owned by us Mm. is much more complicated. I mean, let's think about the fact that, you know, this is a week, so we've been July now, a week in which uh, an American tech company had to admit that they were contemplating selling the data generated by your robotic vacuum cleaner about your house. Right. So you you buy a little Roomba, it runs around the house, and of course, as part of its normal operation, it maps your house out because it has to know where to vacuum. Mm-hmm. It generates that map, and all of a sudden, the company that manufactured that machine and maybe claims that it owns that machine, claims that it can suck the brain of your Roomba out and upload the map of the inside of your house. Which feels surprisingly intimate, right? I think there was one thing to talk about. It's almost like reading the inside of my body. Yeah, and we've gotten almost okay with the idea of our quantified self stuff. So think, you know, fitness trackers, Fitbits, that whole genre. And, you know, we at some level understand that our taste is being tracked. So Mm. Netflix, iPlayer, Amazon, Google. Things you like on Facebook. Same deal, yeah. Tinder, Grindr. You know, there's lots of places where our taste is being measured, monitored, and aggregated. Mm. It was interesting to start to imagine what are the other places ourselves are being kind of, in some ways, measured and monitored that we hadn't fully anticipated. So I think one of the interesting pieces of the world we are moving into is that as more and more things have a digital overlay, and an overlay that's about creating, circulating, aggregating, and consuming data. So Mm. not just ourselves, but the data we produce, and then making sense on top of that. And that sense itself being a new form of data. That's a complexity that we haven't had to think about up until now. Well, because we just only entered this world of, oh my God, there's so much data everywhere now and everything is making it. Well, and let's not imagine that's not the end, right? So all that data is being made, but the more important, interesting, and complicated move is the sense-making on top of that Mm. data. So, you know, what is going to be done with it? What will that data be fed to that will in turn generate new ways of thinking? So when people talk about deep learning and machine learning and algorithms, those are all sense-making tools, right? And And this data is the raw material, is the food for all of these. It is. And, you know, that data is by its nature both incomplete and partial, And so, you know, what does it mean to imagine you are constantly feeding a sense-making tool only a part of the story? Um, Well, it means that it's going to learn a lot about the part and try to make a whole bunch of guesses about the rest and probably not be very right. And I think in some ways more troublingly, one of the things about the data is that it's always already passed. Uh, So a subtle point, right? But as you are teaching a machine to think, what you're teaching it is about what's already been. And if you imagine that you are teaching an algorithm or a sense-making tool about what's already been, 
there are some interesting challenges with that. I mean, the obvious example for, for me as a, a woman returning to Australia is if you were engaging in a job negotiation and that company that you were negotiating with or that entity is decided to use a algorithm to set your pay. Mm. And the data they fed it was, oh, I don't know, let's pick a good one, the census right, and the ABS data. The ABS data would suggest that on aggregate, I should make less money than you right. because I'm female. And the data would suggest that up until now, women have laid, made less money in any particular given job than most men in that same job code. An algorithm could reasonably say, right, so women just earn less money than men. Ipso facto, moving forward, we'll offer them less money. Now, And then it becomes not just a thing, but it becomes an entrenched thing because there's an algorithm and people trust the algorithm rather than yeah. looking for the sources of equity. There. And you'd have to say, well, the algorithm, insofar as that it is built on data mm. – is right. Is right, because the data is the data. So now the challenge becomes, what's the data that's missing? What's the intervention you might want to make? Do you want the world to be the same as it's always been, or do you want it to be different? And how would you ask those questions of these things? So this then comes back to that story that we're telling about data. It's, you know, killer cats versus secret life of cats, right? That there's two ways of being able to frame what's effectively the same data that opens certain possibilities that allows us to tell stories on top of this? And I think raises some really interesting questions, which is that as we move into this world of increasing complexity and sophistication and abstraction, importantly, mm. so the data, you, we get further and further away from, in this instance, the cats. Yeah. <laughs> so there were cats, then there was data about cats, then there was sense-making about cat data, and you know we're moving further and further away from the cats. Um, of course, there's some critical questions at the cat level, like which is, you know, if we imagine we are the cats in this story, of course. Did the cats opt into this? <laughs> Probably not. Do they have any consent about where the data went afterwards? No. You know, how do they feel about the consequences of the cat maps? Oh, sort of all this sort of interesting <laughs> stuff, right? And oh, by the way, where are the questions in all of this about ethics, right. about... Um, what the nature of the sense-making is, about what the consequences are of the stories that we're telling and who they get told to. And for me, as both a researcher and a social scientist, and I think someone who spent 20 years knocking around the valley, I'm really struck by the fact that the tools we have for having these conversations are stuck in the past too. If those tools are stuck in the past, how do we bring them forward into something that will help us for the next billion seconds? So I think we're at a critical moment in time, actually, Mark. And, you know, I know you, that wouldn't surprise you that I would think that. I think we're at this, this critical moment in time where a whole series of pieces of technology are starting to form a technical system. Mm. And that system requires a new approach. So a system sort of like when the uh, the internal combustion engine came out and ended up being everything and ended up changing farming and, and oh, absolutely. cities and, and all of this. Even more simply than that, there was an internal, well, there was a steam engine and then the steam engine became a train. Then the train became a railway, then the railway became a railway system and then it became a transportation system. Hmm. And it was when it was a steam engine, that was one thing. When it became a train, that was quite something else again. By the time there was a track that it needed to run on and a timetable, now we're talking about complexity and abstraction. Right. And questions like Okay, well, you need to know how does metal react under pressure and under heat, but you also need to know about how does it interact with these other systems. And when all of those things started to happen, a new class of people appeared who were called engineers. Right. And what they did was basically make it possible to get to scale safely. Okay. And so, so you have like um, uh, Brunel building a bridge that will not collapse exactly. when, a, when a heavy locomotive goes over it. Smeaton, the same thing. 
you know, worrying about lighthouses. And, you know, we've seen a couple of moments in our history over the last 200 years where different pieces of technologies aggregated to a system and we needed to make new practitioners and new regulators. Yeah. I think, you know, you could say the same about the emergence of kind of industrialists at the end of the 19th into 20th century where you went from money to capital. Okay. And you needed to effectively build business schools to create better bookkeepers. Right. And, you know, one of the side effects of that was that we created ideas about marketing, industrial relations and GDP. Okay. <laughs> New tools appeared. But right? you can also see sort of General Motors and Sloan is the founder of GM. All of those. Absolutely. That becomes that sort of thing. Yep. And that's kind of the world that we're exiting now and entering this new data-driven world, and you can take a look at someone like a Zuckerberg and go, okay, that's kind of the figure for this era. Yep. And also you'd start to say the systems that are adhering are things like algorithms and data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, autonomous machinery. But when you look at that constellation of things, you start to say, okay, yes, you need computer scientists in the picture. Absolutely. And engineers too. By the same token, there are some questions we know how to ask in philosophy mm-hmm. about what does it mean to talk about an autonomous machine? Right. You know, what does it mean to talk about... Which we've been asking since Plato. Well, exactly. Autonomy is not a new question. Like, is a thing self-determining? Can you even say a thing and self-determining because is a thing a self? Which sounds like a philosophical question, but it's actually quite pragmatic when you start to talk about... Self- a car. Exactly. Or anything else. Yeah. Um, so- yes, the robot that's mapping your house out and uploading the map. Exactly. Turns out to be autonomous, but actually acting on someone else's behalf. So how do we think <laughs> about that, right? Uh-huh. It's autonomous, but you don't control it. And you live in the world where it's being autonomous around you. Mm. Exactly. Critical questions, right? And they're questions that philosophers have worried about, as you rightly say, since Plato. They're also questions that lawyers and public policy people have been thinking about for 100 years. They're mm. questions that anthropologists and other social scientists have worried about too. So my sense is we're at this moment where, much like we have had in the past, there is a window of opportunity to engage in a conversation to generate effectively a new set of tools and questions about what this world should look like. And and perhaps from that then some guidelines about good ways of doing things and ways that might cause problems. Absolutely. For instance, developing a robot army that maps out people's houses that someone else owns. Exactly. And what's fascinating here is that, again, a little bit like the killer secret cats problem, <laughs> is that there are really different narratives emerging. So the German government about uh, beginning of July released its guidelines for autonomous vehicles. Mm. They read completely differently than the same guidelines that were produced in the United States because they have this incredibly different idea about what is the role of the government, what is the role of the state, where does liability sit, what does it mean for things to be autonomous and in what circumstances. And I think we have this really interesting opportunity to have a critical conversation, but it requires being willing to um, not hit pause on the technology exactly, but to say that technology in and of itself isn't always the answer, that there are things as human beings, as social creatures that we also should care about. And that, in fact, particularly at this moment of time, technology is generating more questions per unit of time than ever before, and that that should be telling us something. Oh, absolutely. And that at the moment, the kind of the conversation has fallen into the classic conversation. You have Elon Musk on the one hand saying, artificial intelligence, existential threat, robots will kill us. Zuckerberg going, no, they won't. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not much of an argument either way. Exactly. And the thing in the middle that's being lost is all of the nuance, which is actually where all of the real stuff happens. And what it will mean for thinking about 
complicated systems. I mean, I was really struck recently as I was starting to think about this notion of intelligent agents, which sometimes gets discussed, right? The idea that there'll be little bots running around doing things on your behalf. Well, clearly there are because they're mapping my house and selling it to someone else. Not actually physical bots, Ah. like online bots. So, you know, you and I spend a lot of time on airplanes. Yes. We could reasonably imagine we could have little travel bots engaging on our behalf with the airlines because we do not want to. Now, it's one thing to think about that. and You go, okay, sure. But then you have to say, what were they trained by? So in that negotiation technique, were they trained with single-person shooters, chess, or go? The you know, Chinese right. strategy game. Um, on the basis that any one of those would generate a very different way of negotiating. Right. And then you have to think, okay, so you have a little travel bot negotiating on your mark behalf. If it's a single-person shooter trained one, it is going to play a very particular kind of negotiation – and you may not find you get an airplane ticket quite so nicely the second time around. <laughs> I might not even find I get one the first time around. I might just get arrested. Exactly. So there's something that starts to say, there's a second set of questions we have to ask here, right, about what will it not just mean to have this technical infrastructure, but how are we going to be human inside that world of all these technologies, some of which are autonomous, mapping houses and telling other people about it, which feels worse than gossip. It starts to feel like it's the creepy factor right there. Or we will have intelligent agents negotiating with other intelligent agents on our behalf, the strategies of which may not be clear to us, is simultaneously fascinating and more than a little bit, well, fascinating. (laughs) Dr. Bell, uh, I do hope we have a chance to have you back. It has been a pleasure talking to you on The Next Billion Seconds. It's always my pleasure too, Mark. We recorded that chat with Genevieve Bell. And a few days after that chat, the CEO of the company that makes the Roomba, the robot that was mapping out the inside of the house and selling it to someone else, the CEO of that company was forced to come out and promise that they would not be selling that data. They had to promise this because people immediately felt violated, vulnerable, that this little, very cute device that was helping them in their own homes was effectively being used to spy on them. And I guess there's a lesson there for how we have to think about this connected world because when we're gathering information, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is how that information is used. This episode's probably giving you a lot to think about. We'd like to hear from you. Drop by our Facebook page, send us a message on Twitter, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you on a future episode. In the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be talking to Kate Turney, the CEO of the State Library of Victoria, about how we are learning and how that's changing. That's next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. 